let me ask you to take your Bibles this morning and join me as we turn in the third gospel. We'll be reading out of Luke chapter 8 as we continue to look at some of the women in the New Testament. This is a particularly interesting uh, story of healing that takes place. We can also read about it in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 5. Jesus is called upon by a synagogue ruler. That means more of an administrative organizing responsibility rather than a spiritual leader, the synagogue ruler Jairus. His 12-year-old daughter is about, it seems, to die. And he's coming to Jesus to ask him to come to his home, Jairus' home, to look at his daughter. So we've already looked at this 12-year-old daughter several weeks ago, but in the middle of Jesus making his trip over to check on Jairus' daughter, Jesus gets interrupted. He gets interrupted by this particular lady that we're going to meet here, beginning with verse 43 of Luke 8. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Jesus said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is the scene about nine or ten years ago. My wife Leslie has already arrived in Winston-Salem. She and her tennis team are playing in a state tournament there, and one of her teammates' husbands and I are riding up that night to join them so that we can watch them play the next day. We hit the east side of Greensboro on I-40 and the traffic just stops. You ever been on an interstate before when the traffic just stops? Parking lot city. Nothing's moving. We sit there, you know, for 10 or 15 minutes. Nothing's moving. So we're right by an exit off of the interstate. The husband is driving and I say to him, get off at that exit and let's loop around the north side of Greensboro. So he pulls off the exit and he says, I'm really glad you know where you're going. And I said, well, I really don't. <laughs> but I pulled out my cell phone because I knew some, knew some folks who lived in Greensboro and I called them and I explained our situation. We got stopped on I-40. It's a parking lot. I've gotten off on this exit. We're now on this street. Can you kind of loop me around the north side of Greensboro? And when I called the name of the street, the husband and wife were both on the phone listening to me describe the situation. When I gave the name of the street, 
they got quiet. They didn't say anything for a minute. And then finally the husband said, do you have your windows rolled up and your car doors locked? I said, yeah, I mean, you know, this was like November about this time of year, and, you know, obviously my windows are going to be rolled up at night, and as far as I knew, the car doors were locked. I said, yeah. I said, why? He said, because you all are traveling through one of the worst parts of Greensboro. You're in the bad part of town. And trying not to sound too alarmed for the sake of my friend, I just said, oh, really? And long and short, the uh, friends gave us the directions to loop around the north side of Greensboro. We came out on the airport side, hit I-40, no traffic whatsoever, made it right on into Winston-Salem. So I'm happy to report to you we did not get hijacked that night in the bad part of town, whatever that means. Well, like me, like my friend and I on that trip on I-40 heading into Greensboro, Jesus in this text, he gets interrupted like we got interrupted on our trip. He got interrupted in the bad part of town. It seems that Jesus is passing through this town. He's being crushed by all sorts of unsavory characters and all sorts of sinners who are lurking about, ready to make him unceremonially unclean just like this woman. That's where we meet this woman in this text. Before Jesus can make it to Jairus' house to check on this 12-year-old daughter, this woman in the crowd touches Jesus. She touches him. You see, for 12 years, she has been hemorrhaging with a bleeding disorder. It may have well been her menstrual cycle. For 12 years, she's been bleeding and now, according to Jewish law, she is ceremonially unclean. If you go back to the Old Testament book of Leviticus, you will read that there are various situations there that can make a person ceremonially unclean. What that means is that you can't show up for church if you are ceremonially unclean. You can't come to worship. You cannot come to your Sunday school class. You can't come and eat the Wednesday night supper and then stay on for Bible study. Sorry, choir, you can't show up for choir rehearsal on Wednesday night and then sing, Michael, on Sunday morning if you are ceremonially unclean. What, what are some of the things that makes a person ceremonially unclean according to uh, the book of Leviticus? Well, eating or touching certain foods makes you ceremonially unclean. If you have contact with a dead body, you are ceremonially unclean. Ladies, if you have birthed a child for either two weeks or four weeks, depending on the gender of the child, you are ceremonially unclean. Can't show up at church if that's the case. If you have various skin diseases, one of which, of course, would be leprosy, you are ceremonially unclean. If you have mildew in your home, you checked your home for mildew lately? If you have mildew in your home, you are ceremonially unclean. You can't show up. And then certainly certain bodily discharges, such as this woman's incurable bleeding that's taking place, 
all of those things, if, if you have any of those circumstances happening in your life and you touch another person or another thing, that person or that thing is ceremonially unclean. Now, Luke indicates that the woman, as Jesus passed by, touched the fringe or the edge of his outer robe, his cloak. What she probably touched was one of the four tassels that was on the four corners of one's outer cloak that for a good pious Jew was a symbol of the covenant with God. She reached out and she touched Jesus' robe and therefore that made Jesus now suddenly ceremonially unclean. The text says that Jesus feels the power has flowed out of him, and so he asked the question, who's touched me? I felt the power leave me. And of course, Peter is amazed that Jesus would even notice this amidst the, the throng of this crowd, and he says, Jesus, there's so many, so many people around. How, how in the world could we identify who the toucher was? But Jesus keeps looking, keeps waiting, and finally this woman sheepishly comes and falls down before Jesus, and she owns the fact that she is the toucher, and she has been the recipient of healing. Now, you know, this woman gives Jesus the opportunity to show all of us how he is the master of turning a human interruption into a divine appointment. A human interruption into a divine appointment. Have you ever noticed how the interruptions that happen in our lives always happen at the worst possible time? Interruptions always happen at the worst possible time. Have you ever noticed how they completely drain us? And especially if you reframe these interruptions as divine appointments, they come at the worst possible time. Why do they always have to happen when we are the busiest? when it seems we have the least amount of time, we, when we are so tired and stressed out? Why do they have to happen when we seem to have the least resources available to us? And why do they always require the most energy and the most work? That great American inventor who gave us the electric light bulb, Thomas A. Edison, said that opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and it looks like work. You know, divine appointments that are initially viewed as human interruptions usually involve some work. They involve some energy. Those interruptions involve some effort, some heavy lifting. And I don't think it's any accident that Jesus felt the power coming out of him. And what you and I need to know is that when we have an interruption, a human interruption, that we begin to see as one of God's divine appointments for us to be there for someone, you need to know that you'll probably feel the power going out from you too. You probably will feel drained physically, emotionally, mentally, maybe even spiritually, as you try to respond to another person in need. But here's another thing about these human interruptions that become divine appointments. You need to know that other people around you may not always see that the human interruption was a divine appointment. Peter, in this text, is very quick to think that Jesus is crazy for wanting to identify the toucher in the crowd. 
and Jairus, who has a 12-year-old daughter who's about to die, who's gone, and has secured Jesus' services, so he thinks to go to his house to check on his daughter, must have think, thought that Jesus is wacko for stopping in the midst of his daughter dying. Let's get on with the game plan, Jesus. Come and heal my daughter. You need to be prepared that if you are going to start reframing these human interruptions as divine appointments, understand that there may be those around you who will not always see what you see. They may not see that interruption as a divine appointment. But here's one other thing. Jesus is not only interrupted, but notice that it does take place in the bad part of town. It requires Jesus to get his hands dirty. People who interrupt our schedule sometimes often are needy people. They need some healing. They need some help. They need some hope. And that healing and that help and that hope has not always been accessible to them. They are people whose lives indeed are often dirty, unclean, not so tidy. They can be people whose lives are filled with addictions, with hunger, with homelessness. They can be people who lack educational opportunities or opportunities to secure health care. Many times they are people who have little or no money. They don't have any financial support. And their family lives are often so messed up. We often are their last hope for some healing and for some salvation in their life. So we have to be willing to go sometimes to the bad part of town, to get our hands soiled and our hearts wounded. Because I don't know about you, but I've discovered that most people who are in need their lives are more messy than neat. Their lives are more dirty than they are clean. Fact is, in this text, Jesus really has a missional, incarnational heart and attitude. What do I mean by missional and incarnational? You've heard those words before. Well, the word missional means being the presence of Christ. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you are the presence of Christ. You are his hands, his feet, his heart, his mouth, his mind. In everything you do and say, you are going to be the presence of Christ. That's what it means to be missional. If you decide that you're going to be incarnational, what it means is that you really do believe that God goes with you wherever you go. At your work, in relationships with your neighbors, at the community organization or civic organization that you're a part of, you really do believe that God goes with you. Earlier in one of our hymns, we sang about Emmanuel. That means God with us. So if you're incarnational in your thinking, then you believe that God goes with you. If you're missional, you believe you're, you're Jesus' hands and feet, his heart, his voice. So you see, Jesus had the type of attitude that he was an, a missional, incarnational person. Missional, incarnational people, Christians, do not say, I'm going to church today. Missional, incarnational Christians say, I am the church wherever I go. 
See the difference? I am the church wherever I go. Missional incarnational Christians change the metrics of how they count things and how they determine what's successful. You see, you and I grew up in churches, you did as children and I did too, and we're still a part of that culture to some sense. We grew up at a time of the attractional model of the church. The attractional model of the church measures things by how many people show up and how much offering we get. That's the success of the church. If you got a big crowd and you got a lot of money flowing in, it must mean you're successful. Those are the metrics. We count nickels and noses in the attractional model, and the idea is that we want them to come to us at the time that we say they ought to come, which for most churches is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, except uh, you're among the saints, so you come at 9.40 and get it done early. I remember one time when we were doing an early worship service at 8.20, somebody came by the door one morning, and they said, I like to come to the early service and go ahead and get it over with. <laughs> As if there must have been a lot of pain, you know, in the service and the sermon. Like to go, it's like going to the doctor. I like to go ahead and get that appointment early in the morning so I can get it over with. The attractional model of the church, though, says... You come at the time that's convenient for us. We want y'all to come to us, and that's success. By the way, do you know why church has always been held at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? It's in the Bible, of course, right? It's in the Old Testament book of Hezekiah. Just, just, just go look and find the Old Testament book of Hezekiah, and you'll find it right there in Hezekiah 4.3. If indeed there is an Old Testament book dot of Hezekiah, you're laughing, you know there's not. Let me tell you why people sh show up at church historically at 11 o'clock. You, you want to know why? The reason is, and I'll just use my grandfather as an example. He was a dairy farmer. And you know, cows had to be milked even on Sunday. I mean, you would think they would say, I'll take a day off, but they don't. They had to be milked twice a day. So my grandfather was up at 4 o'clock in the morning and was out milking the cows, even on Sunday morning at 4.30, 5 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock. And that afternoon, about 4 o'clock, he headed down towards the dairy barn, started milking those cows, even on Sunday afternoon. So you see the farmers in that agricultural, agrarian society, they still had the cows to be Milk, they still had to feed the chickens. They still had to slop the hogs. They still had work to do around the farm. And by the time they finished their work on Sunday morning and went and got cleaned up and either walked two or three miles or four miles to their church or got in the horse and the buggy and rode, guess what time it was? 11 o'clock. And you thought 11 o'clock was holy and sacred on Sunday morning. You, do you see how the church has accommodated to culture in ways that you don't even think about? People had to make a living and milk the cows even on Sunday morning. So you see, we've, we've adopted this model, this attractional model of the church, 
where we don't have to get our hands dirty or our hearts sold by going out to the bad part of town. We just say, you all come to us and find Jesus and get saved. And our metrics are the nickels and the noses. How many people showed up in the pews? How much offering did we have? And if we have a lot of both, we're successful. It doesn't matter that in our own personal lives, we might not look like Jesus at all Monday through Saturday. We can live like Satan's hell throughout the entire week, but if enough people show up on Sunday morning, we're successful. That's the attractional model. And missional, incarnational Christians understand that ministry that's really important happens outside the church building in the bad part of town as much as it happens inside the church building. Missional incarnational Christians understand that the church is not a rest home for the saints. It's a hospital for sick people. And I'm looking at a lot of sick folks this morning, and you're looking at one right here talking to you. We're all sick, and we need the healing touch of Jesus, just like this woman needed it, just like Jairus' daughter needed it. So you see, we forgot in our efforts to bring people to church that the real measure of a missional, incarnational Christian is bringing the church to people. And sometimes that means going to the bad part of town, getting your hands dirty, and your heart wounded. You know, Henry Nowen, who wrote about the spiritual life, he was a Catholic writer, he has a book called Reaching Out. He says in that book that he had a, had a teacher one time who told him, he said, you know, my whole life I have been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered that my interruptions were my work. How do you begin to look at the interruptions of your life, even if they lead you to the bad part of town? Those, that's really your work. I, I like the story of the pediatric nurse, and she's checking out this four-year-old little boy's heartbeat with the stethoscope. But before she does that, she puts the stethoscope in his ears and puts it up to his chest and lets him hear that thumping heartbeat. And the little boy's eyes get really big as he takes in the wonder of this heartbeat. And the nurse says to him, what do you suppose that is? And the little boy listens for a few moments to that heartbeat just beating. And finally, with a big smile on his face, he says to the nurse, is that Jesus knocking because what do we teach children? We teach them that Jesus lives in your heart. Is that Jesus knocking? You know, I think that human interruptions sometimes are Jesus' knock. It's, it's a divine appointment 
those interruptions that irritate you and throw you off your schedule and demand so much of you and drain you and wear you out, often those interruptions are Jesus's knock, bringing us a divine appointment. And you know what? If we're going to be missional, incarnational Christians, if we're going to follow the teachings of Scripture, then sometimes, like Jesus in this text, that knock is going to take us to the bad part of town.